Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. So the monkeys are real? I didn't say that. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date or with me. But in a few hours, you'll have a major disaster on your hands. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave me Hundreds of them. Well, I, I don't know, maybe thousands. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. At the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, we decide on the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, uh, which we've been doing for a few months now. Yeah, we've got so, like 12 episodes, I think. 12 or 13, uh, something like that. We like did a Cronenberg one. We did a RoboCop one. All kinds of stuff back there. Good stuff. Um, so if you guys haven't hit the jump on that yet, there's lots of episodes waiting for you. Uh, and speaking of which, we do actually have two patrons to thank this week, and that is nice. Daniel Williams. Thanks for joining us, uh, as well as Dean Ellis. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks so much Appreciate for coming it. on this sleazy journey with us and getting all those bonus episodes. Uh, but I think, is that going to be the plug for the week? Oh, no, iTunes. If you guys are listening on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you guys are listening, we always forget this part. Yeah. Make sure to just give us a good old rating and review if you guys are enjoying the show. And we're um, on YouTube now as well. We're on YouTube. We're everywhere. If, if that's where if you, you listen to stuff. shit somewhere, we're probably there. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. But yeah, those are going to be your plugs for the week. Uh, I'm your host, Josh Lewis. And as always, joining me is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Jamie. Welcome back. Miller. Yeah, uh, free listeners. That would have been the last time uh, you. The last time you guys would have heard from us would have been about two weeks ago, uh, and we would have been talking David Lynch's Eraserhead. Yeah, we've been scrambling our brains. Yeah, we've been going weeks. a little crazy uh, <laughs> in conjunction with uh, Nobuyuki Obayashi's House, both uh, totally batshit 1977 uh, debut feature films by some inspired filmmakers, uh, and which we talked with Jay Rosenfield. Um, it was a lot of fun talking about that. So if you haven't heard that episode, uh, that was two weeks ago. It's for free. It's back there. Uh, but patrons, you guys would have heard from us last, last week where we would have been talking, uh, the Holy Mountain. Yep. 1973 Jodorowsky. What a trip. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we kind of went into the realm of seventies sacrilegious controversy cinema. Yeah. Uh, and paired it with, uh, Ken Russell's The Devils from 1971. We found uh, an uncut copy. Which was uh, just bizarre. And, and it, it was, amazing. it was pretty nuts. If, if you like your witchcraft movies with, uh, more brutal burnings and, uh, some, yeah. uh, giant orgies where <laughs> nuns are 69ing, uh, the Jesus Christ, uh, Statue. <laughs> crucifixion, yeah. uh, whatever it is. Yeah. That's the movie for you. That's that's the one. That's uh, the one. So that is over on our Patreon, uh, that episode. That was last week. But this week, we have a very special episode uh, for you guys. This is an episode we've been wanting to do for a while, and we knew we had to get on the show, because Joe Dante is absolutely uh, one of my favorite filmmakers. And his seminal works, Gremlins, 
probably one of the more I I iconic that he did in the 80s. Uh, and Gremlins 2 were two films I really wanted to get on this show, but we hadn't really had a great excuse to. And we have a really great excuse to uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. this week. Uh, so to talk about Joe Dante's uh, Gremlins and Gremlins 2, we have brought on uh, Matthew Chrisman of the Chapo Trap House podcast. Matthew, how are you doing? Hey, good. Uh, thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks for coming. And to uh, crack open the theory book alongside Matt to get into sort of the, uh, the, the more studious, the more academic side of what Joe Dante is doing, we have brought on the Gremlins 2 Institute of Studies. <laughs> How are you doing, Gremlins 2 Institute of Studies? Uh, I'm doing good, but I, I think I might be on the wrong podcast because uh, I was under the impression we were talking about Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakwool, <laughs> and, and the Chipmunks Chipwrecked. <laughs> That's next week. Yeah, I didn't so come apologize. research for that one either. We don't, but... I, I prepared an opening statement. I don't know if it's relevant, <laughs> but I can read it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, do it. <laughs> okay, the, the Alvin and the Chipmunks quadrilogy is an underappreciated achievement in filmmaking, a daring exploration of the relationship between humans and animals. The Chipmunks themselves are a miraculous, yet simultaneously disturbing fusion of human and animal. We see similar themes in the 19th century French prose poem, Maldoror, which the disruption of the barrier between human and animal leads the reader to find, quote, that the author is revealing to him a new mode of perception, a vision which is not restricted by the artificial limits imposed through culture, since the boundaries between the objective and the subjective have vanished. But while they demonstrate a capacity for thought and emotion, the chipmunks also revert back to animal behaviors and instincts in certain moments of comic relief. These actions find their parallel in the romantic misadventures of the human character, Dave, whose sexual ambitions are often thwarted and frustrated by the chipmunks' antics. This, perhaps, is meant to draw on our own discomfort in our own proximity to the animal kingdom. Uh, the chimeric nature of the chipmunks is also our own. The film series reaches its moment <laughs> of cinematic apotheosis in its third installment, Alvin and the Chipmunks Chipwrecked, when we find the infernal rodents stranded on an island and thus removed from their proximity to humans. In dissolving this juxtaposition, which had served as the thematic backbone of the first two films, we are forced to reckon with the chipmunks in isolation, something referential which has lost the very thing it is referencing, whose meaning now exists as something free-floating, groundless. However, the gradual introduction of human characters back into the plot quickly forecloses this tantalizing possibility. Throughout all four films, popular songs are replaced with pitched-up vocals and are thus rendered uncanny. However, in the current day, such techniques are no longer novel or jarring, as this technique has been embraced by electronic and hip-hop music. In light of this, we can recast the early Alvin and the Chipmunks as a distinct part of musical modernism or even futurism. In fact, they debuted in 1958. Alvin and the Chipmunks were arguably the first beachhead of the electronic avant-garde into popular music. For all their effort, the films simply do not live up to that legacy. <laughs> Dude, wow. that was fair enough. That was pure cosmic brain amazingness <laughs> about Alvin and the Chipmunks, and I appreciate it. I'm definitely. I'm putting that in a are there, are, little segment. Are, are there? Are there four? Are there four movies? There's four of There's them. There's four of them. <laughs> I didn't even. My know favorite that. is Road Chip. Personally, <laughs> <laughs> I got. I think I've only seen the first one. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, oh thank you God. very much. Well, for that. thanks for bringing that onto the show. Uh, and I, I see that you're branching out the branding, extending the the course load. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
into other works that don't involve Joe Dante, but today we are going to be focusing... <laughs> Uh, exclusively on the works of Joe Dante. Uh, <laughs> we can talk a little bit maybe about the Burbs, maybe a little bit about Small Soldiers, but for the most part, we're going to be focusing on Gremlins and Gremlins 2. And with that being said, I think we're going to just jump right into it. Gremlins! Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? Look, I know it sounds crazy, I know, but in a few hours, you're going to have a major disaster on your hands. <laughs> Directed by Joe Dante. They'll be expecting you. All right, we are talking Gremlins, the 1984 uh, American, uh, call it a horror comedy here. I guess that's sort of correct. Yeah. Joe Dante, uh, like many filmmakers we talk about on the show, kind of uh, defies genre in a lot of ways, or at least melds them so cleanly together with his own sort of cartoon style that you kind of lose yeah. one side and uh, have yourself kind of ending up all the way on the other. Some funny moments wind up with sadness, some sad moments wind up with some more absurd ones. <laughs> uh, but Gremlins, one of his uh, earlier... Uh, more popular pictures. Uh, he got started out wanting to be a cartoonist. He eventually went and got uh, some uh, producing help from Roger Corman. Which and we did, did see with the uh, lead character too, right? Yes, he, wants he to also be a wants to be a cartoonist. Yeah. Uh, but Joe Dante got started out making Piranha. I don't know if you've ever seen Piranha, Jamie. No, I don't I don't it, think I have. It, it's a good send-up of what Spielberg was trying What's to do with Jaws. What's the Oh, I can't remember now. Mid, early 70s, like, mid-70s. Okay. You know, what, I might have actually this like was before that on TV, like one, yeah, maybe, maybe. And then he he expressed his chops in a more. Uh, I mean, Piranha is horror elemented, but in mm. a more straight up horror film with the howling, before making his way and taking on Gremlins, which uh, being written by Chris Columbus has a bit of a more sentimental sort of Amblin picture feel to it. Yeah. And for some reason, Spielberg thought that Dante was the man to do it, even though it would have been a very different picture under uh, someone like Spielberg's control, who the film was clearly initially written for. For sure. There's a lot of dark undertones to this film uh, that I wasn't expecting. I mean, this is it's probably a little crazy to say, but this is the first time I've seen both of these movies. They just never got around to me when I was younger and uh, just never got around to watching them. But I was very surprised at how dark some of the some of the themes were. I just, I expected mm -hmm. it kind of, you know, I just expected a, a Christmas movie with some chaos and, and you know, some critters, but I, I had no idea that it was going to get to the, the mm -hmm. realm of, you know, her, her father, we'll get to it, but, you know, her father <laughs> passing on Christmas. Uh, some of the, the death scenes of the actual gremlins are quite gruesome at times, so it's, it's pretty crazy. Oh, and Dante wanted them to be worse, but they made him cut back on a couple right, of them. Yeah, <laughs> I, heard, I heard that the original script... Uh, called for the mom to be decapitated yep. and the dog to be eaten, yep. which would have been, of course, blasphemous for any American family. <laughs> but for anyone unfamiliar with, with, with gremlins, I mean, I'm not, uh, maybe there's one of you out there. It centers around uh, a kid named Billy Peltzer, William Peltzer, played by Zach Galligan who, uh, for Christmas, by his sort of failing entrepreneur father, is given a strange but adorable pet named Gizmo for Christmas. And Gizmo is uh, a mogwai, um, a, a sort of mystical creature from a, from a foreign land who the dad finds in Chinatown, Yeah, it seems. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's, uh, I mean, it's basically it's straight up Orientalism. Yes, basically. Uh, the the second one, uh, I guess we'll we'll kind of jump back and forth between the two. This will segment will focus more on Gremlins, but if you have points to reference from the second one, you can bring that in too. Uh, the sure. second one takes that even even further, where the guy approaches the uh, <laughs> the, the the owner of Gizmo uh, and asks him whether his 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 quote is from Confucius or Bruce Lee, and I was like, talk. <laughs> Yeah. It's a little rude. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, they differ. Uh, but he, the the father doesn't even purchase Gizmo. He straight up basically steals Gizmo or purchases it from the uh, the, the grandson behind yeah. uh, the owner's back, the shop owner's back. So he, um, the grandson just seems like they, he knows that they need the money. And he thinks that Tough the times. grandfather is just being stubborn or something like that. If doesn't any, quite understand, I think, the power that the uh, the gremlin has. If Dante gets anything right, it's taking that sort of Spielberg Amblin um, sort of postcard Americana, this very sort of vague, idealized kind of uh, American suburb that never really existed in the way that movies say they do the way that like a Frank Capra, it's a wonderful life movie says that it does. For sure. Um, (laughs) And he infuses it with these, you know, these sort of underpinnings of sadness and failure that exist in an actual real world, like the failing father um, Mm. who thinks that there is business in all of his gadgets that he's making, but he can't even seem to (laughs) get them correct. And it seems like everybody is kind of struggling or sad in in different kinds of ways um, in this film. Um, But that is exacerbated by the presence of gremlins, which exist uh, because Gizmo, as a mogwai, uh, has sort of three loosely defined nonsense rules. uh, (laughs) Yeah, very loose. That involve food, water, and sunlight, three things that if you went about your day uh, on any given day, you probably couldn't avoid. And each and every one of these things has a sort of nefarious reaction um, for the Mogwai. Water multiplies him. um, Sunlight kills him. And what was the run? Eating after midnight, uh, wherever midnight is, I guess. That's uh, what turns them into the... That's what turns them into the the actual gremlins. I guess I shouldn't get it so confused. Gremlins is when they're actually, you know, angry and chaotic, right? Uh, they're called, technically it's a yes. mogwai. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just technicality. <laughs> but the interesting note that Gremlins kinds of pulls is that it makes Gizmo this sort of disarmingly adorable pet that you love. Yeah. And you have affection for, and Spielberg kind of did get it correct in, I think the original draft of the script Dante told him, uh, Dante wanted to have Gizmo turn into Stripe, the main bad gremlin. gremlin. Right. But Spielberg said he's too cute. You gotta, you yeah. gotta, you gotta just, he's gotta be around. The, everyone's gonna wanna see him. Everyone's gonna wanna buy toys of him and merchandise yeah. him. And I think he, he said that he also wanted them, him to eventually kind of help with the whole situation. Yes. I th- maybe it's so that we don't view the, mm. uh, we view him as just the problem in general, <laughs> even though he is the root of it. In a well, sense. he is the wielder of untold power yes. is what he is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and he ra- it raises a lot of, uh, it raises <laughs> by doing that, by keeping Gizmo around, it raises this weird question because all of his offspring in both of the movies, as soon as they're born, they have a will to gremlin, basically. Yes. They mm-hmm. want to be gremlins. They, they, they want to make this 
next step in the more metamorphosis. Uh, and, and that's mo- clear the moment that they come out. But Gizmo doesn't want to become a gremlin. No, Gizmo just wants to watch movies and read yeah, he comics. He wants to chill. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that raises a question. What then, I mean, is Gremlin really the biggest monster of all? Because he refuses to accept his like biological nature? Oh, yeah. trying, trying to insist on being this sort of quasi-human companion in, in total contravention of his entire you know, internal drive? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's a it's a very very good point, uh, and I also I Josh was telling me that you raised the question of uh, should we just kill him off? Do we have a responsibility yeah. to we get murder rid of Gizmo? We're going to be doing a lot of talking about continental philosophy during, <laughs> but this is good old fashioned British style analytic philosophy, good old fashioned ethical uh, ethical quandary. You've got a, an adorable, cute friendly gentleman like gizmo who only wants to be your friend only wants to watch movies and sing but it's incredibly easy for him to get hit with water and then as soon as he reproduces he creates a bunch of uh indelibly mischievous creatures that are going to go off and do anything they can to become monsters that could terrorize towns cities nations the entire world killing untold numbers of people I mean, don't you have a a moral obligation to if you see Gizmo in the road to kill him? <laughs> That's it. that. I mean, honestly, I think you do. But I, I, the thing, the only thing is, is that before this family gets Gizmo, he it seems like he's lived calmly and securely in within the China shop. So it seems to me that it, it, he was fine under the. Uh, the store owners, yeah. you know, guidance and everything. But it's as soon as he gets into this, you know, wholesome American family that's very naive and doesn't know any better, then all the problems occur. So I, I would almost want to say, like, just lock him up with that shopkeeper because he seems to know what he's doing. I just feel I feel like I couldn't kill Gizmo. <laughs> yeah, but and then as we get into Gremlins 2, as we'll see in the next segment, uh, the uh, it, it gets a little bit even under the the shopkeeper's uh, uh, care mm. that other sort of outside forces of, in that case, corporatism kind of bleeds oh, in. You're right, because the that CEO comes to visit him yes. or whatever, right? Because right. because you would think, because I think your response is a form of isolationism, of keeping him contained, keeping yourself keeping isolated. keeping him where he was, where no problems were occurring. Exactly. Yeah. But what Dante is interested in, in a lot of his films, is the idea of if you ignore outside forces, they are eventually going to get in. Sure, um, sure. And you see that in uh, things like Small Soldiers, yep. which is a yeah. <laughs> which is a, a film uh, about how an uh, sort of military industrial complex gone uh, amok will uh, they put actual military grade chips into children's toys to make the children's toys do the things that they can actually do in the advertisements, like run around and yell and fight each other. And with that, they get programmed with the mindset of the American military at that time. (laughs) Uh, And and they even have to create a, uh, a, a a form of peacekeeping monsters who really just want to find a homeland for the, the uh, army soldiers to fight. Mm -hmm. Um, and as we see, we basically get to see the creeping militarism 
make its way into the household as the children's toys start playing that out on a small scale, on an adorable small scale, but on one that is also terrifying as they start trying to uh, wound and kill also the human characters in that film. Um, And it's the same thing with a movie like The Burbs, which is Tom Hanks, which is sort of like a uh, kind of like a Dante's version of like a rear window, which sees Tom Hanks as sort of normal suburb that he wants to keep normal, uh, to the point where he basically has a mental breakdown imagining that his neighbors are cannibals and he almost dreams of them and wishes that they were so that he could return normalcy back to his own suburb. And it's like these sort of like weird outside forces and um, other anxieties basically sort of like infect the American suburb, which has isolated itself um, and is is ripe to be infected by these things. Yeah, yeah. I also I think uh, one thing that's interesting about the trajectory from Gremlins to Gremlins Two to something like Small Soldiers is that um, he almost seems to come around on his position about the Gremlins themselves because even though there's like the bar scene in the original Gremlins where they look like they're having a lot of fun um, in the second film they're much more I don't know playful almost benign I think they only kill one person who's the uh, the doctor. Um, who experiments on animals in that film. Um, And then when the end of that movie is set up so that Clamp and like the militarized police force, um, originally they were going to storm in and have like a shootout with the gremlins, uh, but that ended up being changed. But I think what's interesting is they would be, I guess, sort of the heroes in that scenario. But then when you look at something like Small Soldiers, the... I guess on like an aesthetic level, it's flipped around where the sort of militarized presence are clearly the villains and these sort of monstrous looking creatures who are uh, have much more like plurality and difference between them are the heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that is in both the Gremlins films. You kind of see that flip take place where you almost want to root for them in the second film but in the first film they're very mean and they kill a lot of people yeah and in in this one in in particular uh the the scenes with the gremlins being mischievous is framed as a lot more horror than it is in the second one because um, yeah. the first ones that are coming out and attacking you and it's it's like a almost like a typical kind of creature feature when the gremlins actually unleash until we reach obviously the the bar scene and the movie theater scene which is where you kind of see the first time the gremlins are more interacting mostly as uh, an isolated community themselves um, which yeah. is what the second one extends upon and almost makes that just the entirety of the gremlin existence whereas you're right in the first one there's a lot more of them uh, being intentionally nefarious uh, against uh, a lot of just random people. Like when they uh, take out the sort of like mean old bank lady. Uh, Oh yeah. 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 They, they launch her out of a window at high speeds using her. (laughs) 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 And yeah, some of the, some of the, uh, the gremlin deaths also in the first film are, are pretty brutal. Uh, The kitchen scene. uh, I wasn't expecting. I hadn't seen it since I was a little bit younger and I was surprised at just how brutal the mom kind of gets right into it. Yeah. I thought it was just going to be, you know, you'd see like the legs kind of dangling out of the blender and that kind of thing. But we're talking green blood splattered everywhere. And then one blows up in a microwave, I believe. (laughs) And it's just, uh, as someone who hasn't seen the film and, and saw it more as just, you know, a, a Christmas movie with, with kind of a horror twist, 
I didn't expect it to go so kind of, you know, exploitation and it's violence or whatever. It just, it, it got crazy. I yeah, think. no, it has like a comic anarchy yeah. to it. Um, yeah. Both, both. I mean, obviously literally and in its own um, style that uh, Dante modeled. I, I think that relates to the theme that you were just talking about before, about how in a lot of Joe Dante's films, there's like this invasion of the domestic space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that in the kitchen scene in particular, you have this... Uh, this scene where all of these household appliances are suddenly turned into instruments of killing and it's sort of unsettling, even if it is a little comic. Yeah. And to see the, the mother kind of go into this primal mode of, of defense, because, you know, up till now we just see her as the, the wholesome family wife and, and uh, she's very good to her kids, a very nice woman. Uh, welcoming to strangers in her home. And I also like love that. how quickly she picks it up. Oh yeah, yeah. Which, w- when when she like kind of like looks like, at her carnage, and her first thought is to grab the second knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's almost like she has dealt with this before. It's so odd. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of little uh, bits in here like this, and I also love that when the when the dad first uh, uh, sort of sees that they've they've multiplied too, uh, he kind of does that sort of like little shop of horrors esque like. Yeah. Yes. Every kid in America is gonna want one yeah, of these. He sees dollar signs, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, this could be a, the Christmas present for every kid in America, exactly. Yeah, and I don't know what his plan there though was. I mean, what was he gonna do? Clone him? <laughs> yeah. I, and considering his track record, I don't think that would have turned out too well. We would have got Agreed. some some pretty mutilated Lovecraftian version of of the Gremlins. Yeah. We would have got like uh, when uh, when they when the, the like the fly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and have a gremlin with, with like just one half of a face on its original head as well yeah that'd be great oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah and i forgot that during the kitchen scene too it's the uh uh do you hear what i hear christmas song that's playing in, uh, oh, yeah. in the spot meanwhile the gremlins are like kind of like <laughs> yeah open coming out of their their larva stage which is very uh grossly rendered by the effects team here the effects i guess we should get to are oh my god bonkers yeah it's insane um, Especially that bar scene where it's just everything is chaotic. Everything is. Uh, are, are they puppets? Are they robots? What is the how puppets? Do, okay, because it's um it's unreal. It's just like Dante. Just it was like more popcorn, more popcorn, more chaos. <laughs> it's just that scene is unbelievable. And I don't mm-hmm. know if it's in the first one or second one, but it even has like a a gremlin flash the bartender and things. It's like in both. That. It's, <laughs> oh, it's in both. both. Okay, <laughs> it's fantastic. It's so funny. He's got a trench coat. It's like. Oh man! No, and and one thing in particular that's going to be so really important humor. when we get into the second one is the way that Dante, huge movie fan, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and it seems that Dante, as someone Especially who sci-fi, has, he's seems. grown up ingesting a lot of movies and a lot of American pop culture, and that specifically is how he has realized the Gremlins when they are, uh, you know, finally a formed community, and they're sort of kind of a lot of our worst tendencies in a microcosm they're they're considered yeah. sort of like a like a like a pure id version um and the way that they act though is in is in references and is in uh mm. kind of tropes and things that we've seen in movies like that flash that flashing bit yeah. um and which this you, is, you think directly relates to uh, 
uh, Gizmo enjoying film and consuming it. Yes. So it's kind of just within so. their Because within Gizmo their obviously clearly loves watching movies. Yeah. And I think that it is not a coincidence that when the Gremlins come out, they come out um, sort of reenacting on a smaller scale our own culture at us, our own, yeah. uh, uh, in the second one, they, they, they get a, a little bit, even they start enacting our own politics at us. They start enacting. Yeah. It's almost, they're like mocking it and embracing it all at the same time. Yeah. Um, well that's what Dante is doing with it. The gremlins almost seem to be just sort of on a, on a fast track to going through <laughs> yeah. civilization on a much faster pace. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're, they're going down a very negative road as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think argue- in the, in the first gremlins we are looking at the site of consumption which would be a small family home you know the television and this is something that you see in other dante movies like the burbs um a lot of tom hanks paranoia is fueled by these things that he keeps seeing on tv in that movie uh but i think in gremlins too what's interesting is that they're at the they're in a television studio so it's sort of flipped around you know there aren't really um there isn't that typical Joe Dante scene where a bunch of characters are watching a movie or you cut to, um, you know, to the opening shot of a scene would be the shot from like the TV and it will pan over to the characters. Um, that doesn't exist in Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2 is purely at like the site of cultural production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because they're very the two films are uh, very different in intentionally, especially because Dante, when he came about trying to make the second one, he didn't uh, you know he didn't want to make it. He initially turned it down. So is that pretty much where the tone comes from? He's he's almost satirizing his own film. In yeah, a way. and just sort of the you know the the fact that that thing right. exists only for a production reason, basically, right. um, and he accidentally or you know in a lot of ways intentionally. Uh, ended up creating something a lot more even, uh, maybe not darker in tone, but darker in in, in theme, because a lot of people talk about the second one because it's more cartoony. But the way that it uses the gremlins uh, as, um, you know, a, a sort of microcosm of human, or at least uh, American culture, is a, a lot darker, even though the tone is less horror-oriented. Yeah. Um, because here, there's a very clear-cut sort of, like, hero and villain situation happening here. Sure. Yeah, the, the second one gets into more of a gray area, uh, I would say. But this one, I think, you know, it, it does try to still have that, I don't know, family Christmas vibe in a way for a film. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's still it, it, I mean, it's a, a lot of people's favorite holiday movie. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe they're not quite getting this the poking at, you know, consumerism no, I, I and think, things like I, that. I think but. that there is. But I also think that there's like, a, you know, there's. It's it's we found another way to merchandise Christmas again by selling gizmos. I was, well, I was just going to say it. it's pretty ironic because this afterwards became you know a very big commercial success and mm-hmm. and they made a lot of uh, licensing deals for you know merchandise and and products and things like that. So well, and yeah, there's some irony there for and that's, sure. That that's what I think Dante was responding to when he got around to the second one because yeah, the first one he's very okay. clearly satirizing this sort of like Spielberg Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, and mining it for the inherent darkness that there actually uh, exists in these sort of like sort of hokey small towns that Spielberg tries to render uh, yeah. in a more loving manner. Um, uh, that is gets especially clear um, as uh, we've talked about 
obviously the existence of gremlins is inevitable and it is especially in the first film when they start wreaking havoc they are attacking all kinds of towns folk who uh are just trying to enjoy their christmas eve uh and eventually we end up uh both at a giant uh <laughs> We had, we had a, a big bar sequence that we've talked about, but we haven't got to the movie theater sequence yet, which is oh, right. uh, a classic kind of thing to have in these sort of like drive-in kind of movies, I guess. Uh, I actually think that it's probably a reference to the 50s, The Blob, sure, where yeah. they have The Blob kind of take over a giant movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the gremlins who are watching, what are they watching? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Yeah, they're obsessed. They love that shit. Oh, they just, they, <laughs> they love the cartoons and they love singing. So they got the hi-ho, exactly. hi-ho, off to work they go song. Um, but it, it's insane Their how fast it goes in from the, the destruction of both the town and the movie theater. Um, they end up having to blow up the movie theater with a lot of the gremlins inside, which is pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, to, we get a more traditional horror climax inside of a department store where we have them reenacting like Texas chainsaw. And we have them like, we have gizmo driving around. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And it just, it it gets very ridiculous and cartoony because that is Joe Dante's kind of uh, main mode of, of operation. But in retrospect, when you're sitting there (laughs) thinking about it, you're like, Wow, that was really, really dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, uh, we haven't mentioned the the, the Santa girls. Claus yeah, spit, yeah, like what the hell? That for me, that came out of left field completely. I mean, I was, you know, I was on board with all the the horror aspects of the creatures and things like that, but I just did not expect such a dark story in a in a holiday movie. Yeah, because the the <laughs> some, the girl tells the story shit. about the reason she's not happy around the holidays because not everyone is happy around the holidays. Yeah, and she um, and she explains it so slowly, and they really focus on it, so you can imagine that there's like a scene somewhere that he actually shot the, that dark, crazy <laughs> moment in her life. It was it, it really uh, focuses on yeah, it. where her father dressing up as Santa Claus tries to play a surprise and bring the presents down the chimney, and instead falls down the chimney and snaps his neck and dies. Yeah. Uh, so you don't like Santa anymore, which understandable, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that ties back to the theme that we mentioned earlier, which was uh, like the uncanny, the unhomely, something that's uh, sort of dark that doesn't belong, like a like a corpse in the chimney. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, because it's the way that this sort of because uh, with this, it's less actually almost like the outside in infecting. And it's almost like how it's already been infected. And a lot of people are kind of like trying to dress it up is what it seems like. Definitely. Um, yeah. And that the, the the gremlins are kind of willing to basically just not dress things up. They're willing to just kind of be their Race. their purest, basest, most primal self. Yep. Uh, and everyone Bloodness acts so and- shocked. But it's kind of like a case of... This is what the holidays uh, <laughs> are a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. It's just consume as much as you can and... and uh, well, I think it makes sense that the final scene is in a department store because there's a lot of, I think, discomfort throughout the movie with um, the consumerism, like the useless gadgets and inventions. Uh, the fact that Gizmo is named Gizmo. Um, I think that in the first Gremlins, part of that gets mixed up with xenophobia because a lot of the products that were probably being imported around that time um, were from abroad, from Asia. Um, 
And I think that somehow, as I said, the wires get crossed between consumerism and xenophobia, especially in these small towns. And I think that has, uh, I think that's definitely still in American culture and in American politics. Well, that kind of speaks to Gizmo's obvious origin, um, which you've already pointed out was kind of like uh, bathed in a little bit of Orientalism, his own, you know, his own sort of ancient. I guess they're sort of unexplained origins. Yeah, it's like yeah, an ancient secret in a way. Yeah, yeah, is kind of what he is, and that the the small town American family can't doesn't have the uh, they're a little naive. They they aren't yeah. responsible with that power and that's kind of what happens at the end is after the department they've they've defeated the the evil gremlins and restored order and have gizmo um they uh the shopkeeper returns back uh and kind of gives them a little slap yeah (laughs) yeah. it's like clearly you're not ready idiots (laughs) yeah you guys clearly aren't aren't prepared for this this kind of uh power uh, but there's also obviously inherent in the way that this is framed as horror, a, a fear of their existence and of their foreignness and of where are um, mis- like possibly, I guess it would be our misunderstanding of of their existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and also speaking on the, the xenophobia aspect, it's uh, they have that neighbor who... Yeah. repeatedly throughout the film yeah. is like he's terrified of foreign imports. cars yo. yeah <laughs> he's like get that Hyundai out of here like he's he's all of, he's, he, he's definitely just the you know kind of conservative all-american that's uh, it patriotic uh, you know if it's not american yep. it's not good so yeah and that's that's hammered home with his character throughout yeah, the film exactly so. that's why i think that there is that is does that is in there yeah i, I think he um the neighbor character is um He's associating built-in obsolescence with the, um, I guess, inferior quality of foreign goods, when in reality, built-in obsolescence is the result of, I guess, just market pressure. Yeah, the, the, right. the, the, the cheap yeah. production and the, uh, yeah, all, all kinds of other things. Right. <laughs> cool. Can we wrap up the ending? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Because yeah, it kind of ends with a that was uh, it, it. The they come back. The shopkeeper takes Gizmo back, right, and, right, and right. it ends on like this very just kind of like and that was that time that that happened. <laughs> yep. Back in my small town. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of almost just going back because it's funny because the opening and closing narration obviously sound very similar, and it's it, it's kind of like they're just going to ignore that that basically just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a blip in, uh, even though it exposed certain problems and what's kind of happening in that small town, they're just like, we're going to ignore Let's it. Let's just it's not fine. worry about that. It, the problem was the foreigns. That was the problem. Yeah, uh, the damn gremlins. Yeah, it's all good. It's not our uh, which, which echoes actually where Dante goes with the second one as well. Yeah. Uh, but I guess this is where we'll enter kind of like the, the reductive rating round on this, which for you guys, this is where uh, for our own book keeping purposes on our ongoing list of all the films that we've covered we give the we take away all the nuance we take away all the words and we reduce the movie to a number between one and five uh, and for me gremlins is a four i think i think it's real solid i think it is one of dante's um uh finer works though i may prefer um i mean i prefer gremlins too but i also right. really it's it's just it's up there with like the burbs and small soldiers and uh matinee which uh, I don't yeah, know I if you've see seen Matinee, one, yeah. but that is an excellent one too. Very uh, Cold War anxiety, which is a little different. 
yeah <laughs> very nuclear fallout driven um and john goodman is excellent in it but yeah um for all the reasons we basically said we probably don't have to go over them all again but i think that this is a really solid uh horror uh, satire on spielberg americana um and i think that it's uh, an, an interesting uh subversion that points to a lot of hypocrisies both in that kind of portrait in in culture and both in uh, a lot of anxieties that people have uh, about it uh for you uh, I'm going to give it a four as well. Uh, once again, this was the first time I saw Gremlins, which is, I know, a little crazy, but uh, it is what it is. Um, I was just shocked at some of the, uh, the the violence in this movie. I really didn't expect it. I had I had no idea really yeah, what to expect. The gore effects are pretty Yeah, it's, it, it gets stellar. brutal in certain scenes, and um, it was just unexpected for me. And, you know, I, I, once again, love what it had to say about, you know, kind of consumerism and greed and having that, you know, the dad have the dollar signs and just seeing this issue and going, oh, wait, we could make shit tons of money with this, you know, and, and I, I really liked the, uh, the satirical aspects of it. And that I like, only I gets like crazier they, in the second one. I like so. when they give him the little flag and they're like, patriotic little fella. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just, there's, so, there's some, there's such subtle hints with with the within the themes of uh or what what he's trying to get across and uh and i really i really enjoyed it so yeah i'm gonna give it a four out of five uh for you uh institute (laughs) don't think i've ever called a person an institute (laughs) the the institute of gremlins two studies oh right yes we can't short form it the institute of gremlins two studies for you uh well it doesn't hold a candle to the sequel so i'm gonna give it a three (laughs) okay oh uh, okay, fair enough. Matt? I'm sort of in the same boat in that I really, really like Gremlins, but it is so much less good than <laughs> Gremlins 2 yeah. that I do want to give it a little more distance from it, from from the five that I'm, spoiler alert, going to be giving uh, Gremlins <laughs> 2. So, like uh, three and a half. Cool. Solid. Well, that works out. Well, that'll Perfect. wrap it up for Gremlins, and I think uh, everyone's biding their time waiting for this part. Yeah, we, yeah, <laughs> we really want to start talking <laughs> Gremlins 2, so let's uh, do this. We're going to jump right into Gremlins 2. The too. new batch. Remember the last time <laughs> we told you not to feed them after midnight? <laughs> told you to keep them away from the light and the most important warning of all we told you to never ever get them wet you didn't listen all right we are talking gremlins 2 subtitled the new batch uh the 1990 follow-up to 1984's gremlins both directed by joe dante uh, a, a a sequel by popular demand. Warner Brothers, the movie Gremlins was such a hit for them that they immediately wanted another one. Uh, Dante was like, nah, that was the end of that story. Is that why it took like six years? Yes, because okay. they, they, they kept trying and failing to workshop in pre-production different versions of this with other filmmakers. Oh, uh, okay. And they couldn't get one to work. They okay. Apparently they tried doing one where the Gremlins went to Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, apparently they tried another one where they would have their origin on Mars or something. Are these just scripts that they made essentially? They were workshopping ideas okay. on sequels, but they, they, they couldn't 
get one to work in any capacity. So eventually they came back to Dante and they just begged him. They begged him. And he said <laughs> that he wouldn't do it unless they gave him full creative control, which they did. They yeah, eventually obviously. caved. Obviously. <laughs> they caved and gave him three times the budget. <laughs> yeah. And was like, all right, do whatever the do hell you thing, want. Man. Hopefully it works. And immediately Dante uh, completely sort of changes the tone by bringing it into New York City. Yeah. Uh, bringing it uh, into this sort of hostility of, of high-rise corporatism, yeah. finance capital. Gremlins in the world of finance capital is where, <laughs> we've, is where we've reached with number two. Now, for this one, uh, Matt, do you maybe want to take the reins a little bit here? Uh, Gremlins 2 begins, uh, Billy and his faithful uh, bride-to-be or would-be bride have moved to New York City where they both work uh, for Daniel Clamp, who is an amalgam sort of of Ted Turner and Donald Trump. Yeah, I developed the in, build as big buildings in New York, is what he says. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, yes. <laughs> and he is a low-level uh, illustrator uh, in one of the planning departments, and she is one of the tour guides. And they find out in the middle of their struggling to live in the, the big city and this alienating experience that Gizmo, their old buddy, uh, is being kept in a research, a genetic research laboratory that's also in the building. Right, run by Christopher Lee. Yeah. Yes, it's Dr. <laughs> Catheter. Hmm. That's, just, that's just good comedy right there. <laughs> Classic comedy. You know, if you can't find calling a character Dr. Catheter funny, then I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> uh, and because he, they, they were tearing down uh, the Chinatown shop where he had been brought back after Gremlins 1, uh, after the owner died, because Clamp was building uh, a Chinatown office complex there with, with the amazing uh, slogan, where business gets oriented. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, I forgot about and that. Uh, some of the researchers, they catch Gizmo after he runs away from the building being demolished. So he's in Clamp Tower. And Billy uh, Billy finds him. He rescues him from the lab. Uh, and then, wouldn't you know it, almost immediately, he gets covered in water. <laughs> and then he sprouts a bunch of malevolent children who are mean to him. And then... Uh, do as immediately go out there and try to become gremlins geniuses yep and they succeed oh yeah they lock them up they they get they get to do their thing i mean as always i think the inevitability of the transformation is an important aspect of of both of these yeah, you're kind of waiting for it as an audience member at this point right so yeah well and matt brought up that it's 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 their biological nature that's yes. just what it is it's just yeah like, they are they're doing what they're supposed to do grismo <laughs> is the freak <laughs> yeah. and gizmo's not just a freak in this movie even more than in the first one he because he, he is central to stopping spike at the end of the first gremlins but in this one he he goes through a metamorphosis where Tons after rambo. watching rambo uh <laughs> rambo 2 he you gotta become the war warrior and and literally murders uh one of the other gremlins yeah, he participates in gremlin genocide uh, yeah. after being inspired by Rambo 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he becomes yeah. the so war. He is, he is honestly, to me, a very intriguing character throughout these movies because he is 
genuinely grotesque in a way even the gremlins aren't. <laughs> because what is he? What is, what is his nature? It, it just feels unnatural in a way even a creature that eats after midnight and turns into a pustule and then becomes a slimy, uh, mischievous monster isn't. Yeah, he does. He's, he almost he's seems like he's more sure. empathetic to the human beings uh, and yes. totally un- not concerned with his own species at all. Yeah, it's a good yeah. point. It's interesting. <laughs> I mean, you wonder why are there any? Why is he the only one? And you kind of wonder if he is he just systematically killing every other good one, Mogwai <laughs> that this isn't is, him. Yeah, this is all actually just a ruse so that he can keep doing genocide. He's just this is <laughs> he's like he's actually really fucked in the head. He's like, I hope I get wet, but I don't want to make it obvious. Mm. You know, I want to. I want it them to feel like it's their fault so then I can just start killing these things. Yeah, you're right. Gizmo's a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I love that they they bring back the... Because there's all kinds of movies referenced in the first one, like the like the Capra films, and he, he also watches like these old Hollywood films like To Please a Lady and Invasion right. of the Body Snatchers and all these things. Yeah. And it's really and telling. I think uh, even the doctor holds a pod from Invasion of the Body oh, yeah, Snatchers yeah, yeah. at one point. Like, there's a lot of really interesting sci-fi references that are just in the background mm-hmm. of the movie. Uh, but it, it's it's particularly uh, like pointed in this one that he is watching Rambo 2, which is, oh, yeah. which is a focus. notorious film for... If the first film, which we actually did talk about on the show, First Blood, uh, which has a little bit more of a, a sort of a sadness and a... Uh, um, I'm trying to think what's the what's the word here. It, it's a lot of people think of the Rambo films rightly as a franchise as very jingoistic. The first mm-hmm. film is a little bit less so than all of the other ones. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, we covered and, that too. Yeah. yeah, but it's awesome that he's not watching the first one and he's watching the second one, which is notorious for twisting yeah. that and yeah. making Rambo the exact thing that he basically doesn't want to be in the first yeah, one. Yeah, he has a full mental breakdown in the first one about because he's not terrified being that this, he's been turned into a, in, into a yeah. killer machine and in the second one he's just like I'm back and I'm the killing machine and this rules and they play it as it's a good thing that Gizmo did this oh yeah I mean Dante obviously knows that it's not but the characters themselves at the end say hey uh, Gizmo you got a good look there and he's got the Rambo (laughs) red uh, uh, headband around him and stuff like that well it's the same thing at the end of the first gremlins where they kind of they see this unfold right in front of their eyes and they decide that they can just ignore it Mm -hmm. Um, despite the fact that everything that the gremlins do in this is basically proof that the the current route that we're on is not conducive to the longevity of society of civilization at large yeah um, and yet we're going to keep selling it. We're going to keep merchandising it. We're going to keep doing all of the things that aren't, that aren't working. Mm-hmm. Um, and the gremlins in this are basically a cartoonish display of all of those tendencies. Yeah. Uh, and even seeing that happen on a even small, brutal scale, uh, isn't enough to dissuade people from yeah. doing anything. In fact, I think at the very, very end when they do eventually just wipe out all of the gremlins inside the building. Gizmo. Except Gizmo. <laughs> they, uh, I can't remember what the, what the line is, but he's just like, I like that. We'll sell it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the, but I, I remember what you're referencing. Yeah. Um, but this one, uh, interestingly, uh, the, the change in setting obviously is the biggest difference from Gremlins to Gremlins 2. Yeah. That the small hokey Americana is very different than the, uh, New York City, um, corporatism that's happening uh in you you get that from the very beginning when uh 
I mean, after the opening Warner Brothers logo with uh, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, um, some of the first uh, scenes in the movie are just that small, kind of cozy Chinatown shop just being bulldozed <laughs> to presumably be replaced by this sterile, placeless skyscraper. This kind of like in in the in the movie, the skyscraper. The, the plants in it are like silver or gray. Like they're not even like, even those are just lifeless and yeah. completely like mechanized and detached from nature. Yeah. And it's all, it's all produced by clamp clamp industries and clamp cable network, which, uh, the logo is literally them squeezing the earth, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, like you, you can't, Damn good symbolism. it's like Dr. Evil shit. Like you can't even yeah. get more, uh, o- overt. Than they didn't that. even try to hide their no. tendencies. <laughs> uh, and they have, they have all kinds of neat little touches, touches about this automated building. Um, and the fact that it's basically just as poorly produced and breaking down as the dad's gadgets in the first film. Uh, none of the, the, the swinging yep. doors are working. Uh, yeah, one guy just gets sent revolving. <laughs> yeah. One dude launches out of it. And then later in the film, another person is just stuck in there. Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah. we're coming to get you. It's all good. <laughs> um, and they have, uh, uh, they don't know anyone's names, uh, in the building. They have like badge tags that they electronically read your identity off. Of <laughs> and they're like, yep. oh, hello, William Peltzer. It's like it's Billy. It's yeah. <laughs> um, and they they get all mad at him because he has, as a cartoonist, he has a drawing of his his hometown, uh, Kingston Falls, which is the small town from the first film. Um, and they tell him that he's not allowed to have it there. He's only allowed to have authorized modern art uh, that is <laughs> that has been approved by uh, the corporation to hang uh, in his cubicle. Uh, Did they kind of take that in a different direction at the end because. Uh, Daniel Clamp sees that drawing and he wants to turn it into Clamp Corners, this like simulacra version of uh, Kingston Falls. That's what it is that he does at the end. That's what he comes up to. He comes up to his drawing. He's like, this is great. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's make this. Uh, because again, he's just doing the exact same thing that brought them to this point uh, in in the first place. But right. yeah, that's that's hilarious because we already it's, talked it's about interesting Because there's been talks of like a reboot and that is sort of what a reboot is. It's like an attempt to uh, recreate Kingston Falls by yeah, yeah. It's an, people's nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. An attempt to relive um, a certain experience, um, usually associated with uh, you know home or childhood, yep. um, which you know it really can't happen. You can't go back to that. And I think that trying to have this flight into the past, this attempt to keep reliving those same experiences uh, is, I think, an impossibility. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty much against the Gremlins reboot because of that. <laughs> yeah, it would, seem, it would seem completely against you know, what these movies represent. So it would be odd unless, unless Dante got on board and he did something that was... So over the top and crazy. Well, I, well, th- that's what's funny is that Dante basically said that about the existence of Gremlins 2. And then right, he right. used Gremlins 2 to investigate yeah. those exact ideas. So right. if he were to sign on for a Gremlins 3, he would, just, you, 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 you would, would have think, to blow up the whole world at the end of it or something. Like, it yeah. just have to be total destruction. But it is so funny that the first one kind of tears down an idea of this kind of, like, uh, idealized, non-existent um, sort of 
hokey happiness that exists in this in this small <laughs> family town. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the second one, he sees a drawing, not the town. He sees a drawing, a cartoon drawing of this of this town that we already know isn't as uh, idyllic as we will as you know this picture paints it and then he's like i want to make the corporate version of that yeah (laughs) and we're like i'm sure that will go well (laughs) i'm sure that'll be i'm sure that'll that'll be the thing that finally brings us into the transcendence that we we've been hoping to reach uh and and not at all keeping us on the same sort of track to um (laughs) hell world basically (laughs) yeah uh which is where the gremlins in this uh, basically try to eventually take us, um, on a, on a much faster, smaller scale. Um, the, the extended sequence in here where the gremlins finally get to unleash inside the automated building while everyone else is trying to, uh, obviously quarantine the building is where this probably gets the most formally interesting of Dante's entire career and where Dante, uh, (laughs) basically just does a complete stylistic free for all. Yeah, um, for like 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it's absolutely bonkers because yeah. the gremlins, as Matt kind of talked about earlier, they, they're in the the uh, the gene lab in the... And I love the line that Clamp has about how, oh, we just had to have a gene lab. Like we couldn't have put like a, like a dental... Could have had two strengths and a plastic surgeon in <laughs> that's there. Exactly yeah, that's, what it yeah. is. <laughs> that was a great line. We had to just, we just had to have the, <laughs> the gene lab in there. Um, but the gremlins get access to the gene lab and that exacerbates what we, the already, uh, mischievous behavior that we saw in the first one. And because they have a lot more sort of space to move around to, or maybe not space cause they did have a whole town, but a, a much more variety yeah. of things to engage with. We get to see gremlins acting, um, in, you know, in, in, as in a little bit of less mischievous ways and more in like, uh, we just want to live <laughs> Yeah, they want they want the pleasures of of life and civilization. And right, uh, where I guess is kind of where brain comes in to play, right? Yes. Where you get this the very first talking, fully speaking gremlin, and he's very sophisticated, and yet still seems to think that the way to go is the way that we've been going. And you know, he wanted. What did you say earlier? We were talking. You said he was like he wanted the. You know the Geneva Convention, the things like Susan that. Sontag. Yeah, he he basically wanted things that exist because terrible things have happened. Right, right. And I'm like, to that want those point, yeah. things means you also want those terrible things to have happened. Right. Exactly. Like, like the idea that civilization to him is the you know war crime laws and things like this. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, well, hopefully you would want to just avoid war crimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Instead of preparing for it before you've even But again, <laughs> they are they are a manifestation of a lot of our worst um tendencies. Um hmm. they are again similar to the first they are they are they are pure id, but this time they have more playfulness and they have more opportunity is what kind of happens in, yeah. in in this one. Um, and yeah, they, uh, brain sort of operates as like a civil rights leader for the gremlins yeah. is kind of the idea that it takes on and his, his, uh, his one moment he's, where he's he, on national television and shoots one of the gremlins in the face. And then he's like, that was fun, but it wasn't civilized. <laughs> like it's just, Oh my God. The way that even the intellectual gremlin views the world, you know, it's, it's frightening. <laughs> well, I, I think we had to ask whether or not the brain gremlin is uh, not that smart, and he's just sort of 
similar to the other gremlins, except, you know, he can speak more eloquently. So when he talks about sure. civilization, he's just listing off, you know, whatever uh, associations. He's sort of free associating and just listing things like credit cards and uh, like Susan Sontag. Yeah. Uh, but alternatively, you could say that he's purposefully being sort of cryptic and incomplete with what he's expressing because uh, he has no intention of, you know, negotiating with people or, or the humans or telling them the truth because, you know, he's just going to lead all the gremlins out of the tower and have them take over the city. Right. He's going to lead an imperial march. <laughs> yeah. That's the plan. <laughs> and do you know what? Go for it, man. Things can't get much worse. Um, (laughs) but yeah, they, they get to do, uh, this is where things get really, really playful. Um, and we get lots of things like when they take over the, the, the elevator, uh, and, uh, the, the, the bit of gore that Dante gets to use here is when, uh, clamp puts the one into the shredder. Oh yeah. That was insane. Very gross. It's very violent. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it actually, it made me, do you think that they only focused the violence on the gremlin so that they could get away with certain other things with the humans? Cause there is a moment where the gremlin is like just biting on this dude's neck. And I almost wanted there to be like a spurt of blood going off and like a true R rated horror gremlins movie, to be honest. It was like, uh, cause I saw that shredder scene and then, oh, and then when it comes yeah. to the human violence, it's actually not. Uh, as, well, as well yeah, that's so. that's just to secure the PG rating. That's okay. Yeah, because because uh, b- because Dante violence against gremlins and it's kind of speaks sort of in a meta fashion. Violence against gremlins is totally fine. fine. Exactly, uh, but violence that's against th- humans is uh, in the in the reverse is not. Um, yeah, I think that in both films they use that the fact that violence against the gremlins is more acceptable. Like the mother in the first film, you, you remarked earlier about how quickly. She just turns around and she's willing to just start murdering these things. And you can say that she sort of has this repressed anger and frustration with, you know, her husband's failed inventions that she's taking out on the gremlins. Um, And I think the same is true in the second one where, you know, Daniel Clamp is really quick to uh, kill that gremlin that's disguised as his secretary. (laughs) He seems nice and charming, but that's definitely... uh, sort of sociopathic yeah like he was waiting for an excuse (laughs) (laughs) and and yeah brain starts commenting on the stock market he tells everyone that they should be investing in uh canned food and shotguns because that i think speaks to where he plans for uh the world to the world to head or where it's already on track to go uh and then one of the more iconic bits in this um the, the wielding uzis discussing politics uh, <laughs> taking over the very projection room yeah, of the actual... where it gets just meta as hell. <laughs> yeah, where... where they, the, they start the, eating the film itself. The, the anarchy of the gremlins, uh, the implication is invading our, uh, our own spaces. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it speaks to Joe Dante's matinee where he has uh, a sort of B-movie showman who uh, is all about bringing the, the, these experiences to these people, these shocking experiences, um, and in matinee, in order to sort of relieve everyone's uh, nuclear fallout anxieties, he basically simulates the apocalypse for them, starting out on screen with, uh, with, with his movie Mant, 
uh, a man who uh, is transformed into an ant by uh, the nuclear radiation from the dental office. And then he he kind of does it where this that like 4D, 5D experience where he starts having the, the movie theater burn down and he starts having these the, these war sounds outside um, and it gets in, incredibly meta about the way that we again the same way that he has we ingest pop culture and the way that it kind of regurgitates back um, yeah. and the way that uh, <laughs> the gremlins uh, in their own way are that regurgitation and are acting out not just now our movies but are acting out our actual sort of <laughs> yeah. civilization in general yeah, and they even have that that great reference where they they completely break the fourth wall and have Hulk Hogan look at you, and they're you know he's just like I'm gonna take down these gremlins, brother, no problem, you know. Yeah, in the projection room. Yeah, yeah it's I'll fantastic. Um, my that's that's of course in the theatrical version. Sure. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. just gonna yeah. point this out. Yeah. yeah, the VHS they made a specific one just for VHS copies where instead of the film burning. Uh, the VHS tape starts to get uh, get fuzzy and, and start to lose tracking, and then it, they ends up getting into a shootout with John Wayne, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah, they the fact that that's not themselves. the theatrical version is actually uh, heartbreaking because watching it, it, you you should if you can find it on YouTube, you should. Throw I have it seen in. it. Yeah, you I have throw, seen it. Yeah, uh, it it is just awesome to watch them flip through the channels. Uh, and have the gremlins going through. Just and, imposed in all these films. And then finally yeah. they get to a John Wayne movie and they're like, ah, oh, yeah, this is where we're going to hang out. And then John Wayne guns them all down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I recently rewatched that uh, and I was struck. I, I like, I think, the concept of the, uh, of the theatrical one. I like that, just the idea of you're in a theater and it's showing, you know, this is essentially happening in around you and it has that William Castle schlocky sort of you know interactivity but it also speaks to this idea of the gremlins as this irrepressible force that, that multiplied beyond human control and uh, break through any kind of boundaries that might be set for them but there is something about the flipping channels in the VHS version especially the fact that they flip a few times through scenes of just absolute mayhem Yep. Uh, there's one film, it looks like some Sword and Sandals movie with just an army of swordsmen charging past burning buildings. <laughs> and it just, it does have that, it, it definitely feels more apocalyptic. Yeah, this is kind of, the, the second one very much, um, I guess apocalyptic is 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 the word. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, Daniel Clamp really, has a video from the end of the world that yes. he plays. Oh, it's amazing. Because what? How does it go? It's like we're now going off the we, air. We, we hope we hope that you enjoyed our programming, but more importantly, we hope that you enjoyed life. And it's all <laughs> just these like stock footage shots of like a little girl running through the grass. Yeah. Parenthetically, that is based on a real video that Ted Turner had made for CNN uh, that I think is available on YouTube if you look for it. But it, it, they they made an end of the world video. I'm what, looking at uh, like up right just after in we case or like yeah. actually yes. Jamie if you no, find exactly, that online no, exactly that's a literal thing that Ted Turner did that they just put in the movie that's fucking nuts <laughs> holy shit if you can find that you should throw it in yeah I might yeah I'll throw it in here <laughs> if I can find it wow that's crazy yep this is it folks 
the last thing you'd hear before you die in a nuclear hellfire. God bless America. Yep. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, and as as a lot of layers to this film, yeah. Well, because I mean, as the gremlins start creating chaos, the film uh, Dante's uh, form just kind of gets radical. They start disobeying the laws of of, of narrative structure. Uh, it's really hard to like pin down uh, the actual arcs of this film until they're kind of they eliminate the gremlins and everything's brought back in, and we get a little bit of like a closing thing about what every what everyone was doing. But as yeah. the gremlins are taking over the film, and as they're again, as Matt pointed out, they're kind of multiplying beyond control and boundary. They start taking over seemingly the editing room, and they just kind of get yeah. to do whatever they want. There's a, a distinct bit that's in. Um, where they they reenact Phantom of the Opera and it's actually <laughs> shot in like the stark shadowy like it changes the lighting it changes the style and it's like the the gremlins have like gotten behind the camera and like uh, that stuff they're is making just the movie absolutely now. absolutely nuts they they start mounting a musical number of New York New York <laughs> yeah and that scene is so hallucinatory because it starts with Brain Gremlin leading them in the song. But then they just cut away to other things, including this uh, sort of Broadway-esque thing with the Lady Gremlin, where, all, <laughs> right. where her face is made out of all of these cards. Right. There's uh, like a brief overhead shot of, of yeah. them doing the synchronized dancing. That's like a Busby Berkeley musical number happening. Yeah. <laughs> but they cut from there to the Gremlins getting a tattoo or the Gremlins loading guns or the gremlins hitting themselves in the head like looney tunes and then they'll cut back to the song and it's just like the sense of any kind of uh continuity <laughs> is totally breaks down yeah. there, there, there's no there's not any concern for spatially orienting anything or chronologically orienting anything right and it's it, it it's, really it's, it's like this is what it is when the gremlins take power all of the things that you think you understand have to are, are just fall away because they absolutely ignore them all. Yeah, it's a, it's a formal representation in the actual style of the film of what the gremlins are doing. Yeah. Um, well, I think that it's sort of the inevitable consequence of just complete media saturation because that seems to be like what the gremlins are. Like they just they are they they communicate in references and cultural signifiers and just taken to such an extreme it it just you know, as you, as you said, it's hallucinatory. Um, it it loses any semblance of plot. It's just a string of unrelated scenes and images. Yeah, and I mean, they even stick to that at the very end when, when they're when they're dying. They're still referencing film. You know what I mean? Like they can't <laughs> escape that mentality at all. They have the the burning witch from uh, the Wizard of Oz reference oh, yeah. and things like that. It's like, yeah, they, they can never escape that. They're getting Warner Brothers tattoos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they, were, they, were, yeah. they were on the DC train pretty That's early. Great. Um, uh, I, I kind of want to just speak about, just briefly, because I'm, I'm someone, once again, haven't seen these movies prior yeah. to this. So yeah, yeah. seeing the first one and then seeing the second one and having no real, I don't know, like time attachment to it. Oh, yeah, okay, it's it, It's... It seems to me that the second one is so obviously better for me, and oh, I guess yeah. it seems for you guys as well, but it seems like a lot of people were really negative on it. I don't think it made a lot of money compared to the first one, and I was just wondering what your guys' take on was that. Was it because it was just too different? They like were doing people's too response many, to it. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious. 
I mean, for my, me, it's just people are swine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, like they saw something and it was not exactly what they had gotten the last time. And so they just oinked and banged their hooves together in disapproval. <laughs> Spot on, man. Yeah. Spot on. <laughs> I think that's kind of what Joe Dante wanted. Maybe not with the, the popular audience, but with the studio. Like they gave him complete control and, you know. You wanted to flip them off a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why there's so many films like, you know, like The Matrix, which is trying to be, you know, subversive. But The Matrix made millions and millions of dollars. You know, Gremlins 2, I mean, it essentially flopped, but I think that makes it more uh, subversive because it actually achieved what it set out to do, which is ensure that there would never be a Gremlins 3. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, yeah, it's a very good point. Well, what's the, what's, the, what's the line in the movie somewhere? It's like when art and business combine, anything can happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> one of the one of the guys says that, and it's it's very clear that Dante has you know a very uh, he's very suspect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's very he's very suspect of all of these uh, kinds of forces, and especially when they get involved in in art. Um, and yeah, <laughs> to to purposely sink the film is is <laughs> one way to do it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it also seems like he finally just he he had all of these ideas, and he finally had kind of an outlet for them, and especially giving him full creative control. That was just Warner Brothers bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure they still made enough money back on how they merchandised Gizmo. Uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, in the same way that uh, Clamp wants to immediately start to plan to build and market the Kingston Falls, um, Clamp's Kingston Falls, like sort of his own, uh, his own Chinatown that he's trying to make. Yeah. Uh, did you guys have anything else you wanted to hit on? Uh, um. I have a statement. No, not a long one. It's a short one. I think that uh, Gremlins 2 is it's postmodernism without the uh, um, sort of uh, the fixation on authenticity that kind of poisons most of modern postmodernism. And uh, um, I'm not going to explain that any further. That, that's it. <laughs> that was the statement. Uh, I just like to, to reinforce that. The idea, I mean, I sort of said in this. This podcast sort of came about partially because I just tweeted while I was watching it a few months ago that it's like the one non-reactionary postmodern artifact. And uh, I mean, I, that's I haven't watched enough stuff to say that that's definitively true, but it feels <laughs> true to me because it is because, you know, a postmodern most modernity, that self-awareness that is as as uh, as I think Frederick Jameson said, that's the that's the cultural logic of late capitalism. It is not. As challenging as it might seem on the surface to establish narratives, blah, 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 it is just an expression of sort of the dissolving borders created by hypercapitalism. It's not really challenging it. And I feel like Gremlins 2 is a very rare work in that it actually does challenge while being conventionally sort of a postmodern product because the gremlin is this undigestible other. Uh, it's, this, it's this expression of pure... Uh, pure chaos, pure opposition within this this structure in the film, the Clamp Tower, which is as close as like the Foucault concept of like modern society as sort of a collection of just different panopticons and prisons uh, and just erupting within it and totally undermining it and, and reproducing out of control and leaving an audience member with that feeling, like we said, of rooting for the gremlins. 
And to root for the gremlins is to root for an alternative. To root for the gremlins is to root for something else. It's scary. It's often uh, dangerous. Like part of what makes it so so uncompromising is the way that the, the gremlins don't fear death the way we do. They don't fear pain. They laugh as they get scalded with acid and riddled yeah. with bullets. Oh, yeah. And that is disturbing to people who are, you know, who live the conventional lives and who seek comfort as we all do, and who's 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 seeking that comfort have found themselves imprisoned in these uh, institutions. Uh, but seeing that radical expression, uh, it's it's it really is the only uh, articulation of uh, of a uh, alternative and of denial uh, that I've seen in something that uh, it otherwise sort of carries the hallmarks of a traditional piece of winking, fourth wall breaking postmodernism. It's an actual cogent argument for the resistance of all of these things that Joe Dante is actually um, pointing out in, in his films. All these outside forces, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases like uh, in, in things like The Burbs or in things like Small Soldiers, a lot of the times uh, things are just restored. The status quo is restored is kind of how a lot of those in, uh, end up uh, re reaching. And this kind of ends that way too, but... This is the one film Dante made where the actual formal style is radical and actually poses, uh, as Matt said, kind of like uh, an alternative to that. And it's also a movie that ends with the implication that a dude is going to fuck a gremlin. Uh, <laughs> he, oh, he's fucking that gremlin. And yeah, like, talk about a radical like, alternative. Talk about, you know, a, a, a way, a, a, a challenge. This guy seeing a literal monster wearing an, a, a wedding dress. Uh, it, it goes from horror to to uh, arousal <laughs> on the turn of a dime. I mean, that, that's that is yeah, that's challenging. That is a new uh, way yeah, forward. No, I, I just want to say, like you talk about the burbs. I love the fucking burbs, and yeah, just the fact that it can't end with them having blown up their neighbor's house is just a real bummer. Yeah, because that, that that's I just the, wish that movie could have ended with them. Yeah, we just I blew think up that movie was. Wasn't it implying that they are making pottery? I think they completely abandoned that plot line, but they're digging up clay. They have a big oven, and bones are used to make uh, bone china. Oh, I feel like he that was in the writing room. Yeah, like, but then, but then they they actually do try to like kidnap him and kill him when he's in the ambulance or something like that. Because because he is because Matt's right. They, he is eventually proven to be right that his neighbors were weird creeps who were possibly. Uh, criminals. Um, but w what's interesting is that in the same way that Hitchcock did with Rear Window, what he kind of captures is how badly people want that to happen. And I'm like, dude, why would you? And, it, and it's because the idea that they want to return normalcy in, in, in Rear Window, it is the character who's a, a war journalist sitting at home dreaming of a story, something, because he's so bored. So he starts looking out his window, hoping to find anything. And it doesn't matter the fact that he was actually made right the fact that he did capture a murderer. What's more important is that he only caught a murderer because of his own selfish desire for that story, um, which is kind of the same thing with Tom Hanks's thing is it. And all of his buddies is that they, they, they fantasize about the idea of being able to, of having creepy, 
killer pedophiles next door that they can hopefully uh, take down because that's the that's the ultimate expression of what they believe, uh, which feels pretty apt uh, in the the era of like something like QAnon. Uh, <laughs> oh God! Like that the final thing that that Art says when they're being interviewed by the reporters after they blow up the boss we're not content to mow our lawns anymore. We're out to get them. <laughs> he literally says we're out to get them. Like that sounds it's like, it's like a George Zimmerman. Yeah. Suburban it's, like, it's like get who? <laughs> yeah, get who. You should want your neighbors to just be normal folks, man. Yeah. <laughs> but again, there's, there's all these sort of ang- anxieties that exist in these modern uh, suburbs and these modern institutions. Uh, and Dante feels like he is, uh, very cogently expressing them, uh, especially here in, in Gremlins 2, which is possibly the most uh, pure distillation of his style, uh, just based on the fact that, uh, I mean, he had full creative control, which is probably the f- first and last time <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, in his career that he got that. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll... Oh. To return to what we were uh, discussing like a minute ago, yeah. um, Walter Benjamin once said, don't start from the good old things, but the bad new ones. And I think that Gremlins 2 actually uh, embraces that ethos um, in that in so much like postmodern art, there is this attempt to seek authenticity in the past. And this goes all the way back to like Heidegger and his actual philosophy. And I think that Gremlins 2 is an example of something that doesn't do that, that treats the past in an extremely unsentimental way i mean it starts with like just being completely like bulldozed and i think that that is what makes the film ultimately something uh which probably does deserve more attention and more study because it it does it attempts to go all the way down to embrace like all these crazy um these these things that already exist in over the top sequels and just draw them out to such an extent that the movie completely goes off the rails and no longer even resembles um, your typical sequel. It barely even resembles uh, like a film in the third (laughs) act. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe we'll enter final thoughts in the reductive rating round on this one. But for me, Gremlins 2 is a pretty easy five. Um, uh, I really adore Joe Dante and everything um, that he does. I love his sort of Chuck Jones inspired uh, antics, his, his his cartoonist way of, of of looking at the world. But also, I think that he has a very pointed critique of um, uh, American anxieties and American institutions. Uh, and Gremlins Two is uh, having watched a lot of his stuff and uh, rewatched a lot of his stuff in the past week uh, is probably the most pointed example of it alongside. Um, you know, uh, small soldiers, which I think is a little underrated, which I think it does a really a more overt job of getting into the military side of this, which he only gets one shot in here of the gremlins who have established a military. But it's really <laughs> awesome that they're about to go outside. And the first thing they think of is like, all right, we got our military. We're heading out. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, I think a lot of the things that we've already talked about uh, kind of get at that the way that this movie um, formally breaks down um, um distinguishes it uh, in a lot of ways from movies that maybe even try to critique the same things. Uh, it's a very unique film in that sense. For you. Um, well, I am going to give it the 
the four out of five. Um, oh, man. I, I know. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Ruined. Uh, but I do think I'm going to be going back to these right. two movies. First time uh, Especially after thing. these. Like, like, you guys have really given me some new ideas when it comes to uh, looking at these films. So, um, yeah, yeah. once again, first time watcher. Uh, so I, I, I loved that they just stripped it away and they're, they kind of just put up two middle fingers, one to the studio and one to the, the, the audience that just wanted another fucking gremlins same thing you know oh, the man. traditional the, the, sequel the, 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 the gremlins that. who attack leonard malton the film critic who panned the first <laughs> right, gremlins right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's it's fant- it's great it's fantastic i would have enjoyed honestly and i know that he couldn't do it because he still needed to you know get his rating and he still i think probably needed to to get that studio approval a little bit so that they could release it but i would have loved like a true r-rated <laughs> like like blood yeah. everywhere with, it, even with the humans and even more truthful me, end would have the gremlins cause a nuclear fallout, yeah and basically. i also i was expecting with this one uh kind of a similar ending to little shop of horrors whereas they just take over fucking everything oh the director i almost wanted one, yeah. that i almost wanted them to not be defeated just because of what this movie was uh poking fun at and also uh, saying right, so. the, the fact that they still somehow restore a little bit of status quo. Yeah, yeah. But it, it but is, I, I get it because you guys the, actually uh, made a point about that, so I, I understand. But one of the earlier versions of the script had the gremlins tipping over a skyscraper. So imagine how much of like a fever dream it would be to be watching a movie that's basically Gremlins too, but it includes a scene like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Uh, so yeah, for now I'm going to give it the four, uh, mm. but I'm I'm looking forward to rewatching these with kind of some some more knowledge on them. So yeah, cool for you, Matt. I mean, yeah, obviously five, no question. <laughs> I mean, anyone, it, it, Joe Dante to me has got to go down as one of the most just underappreciated American directors. Just definitely. I mean, because like the Burbs is not, I could talk for an hour about the Burbs and how much I love that movie and 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 that he made that and and Gremlins two back to back and. He made movies like Gremlins, uh, uh, the first Gremlins, which is also really good. Is 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 moving from genre to genre, matinee, uh, and yeah. But like to have made just Gremlins too, my God! I mean, <laughs> that's that's sort of like you could be pull a Charles Lawton and just knock it off after you do that. <laughs> yeah. So five for five out of me. Awesome. Nice. And for you, Institute of Gremlins Two Studies. <laughs> I'm not used to saying that yet. <laughs> I'm gonna think about this. Oh, okay. Take well, your time. Yeah, I can edit. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give it a five. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I almost, give it a ba- I almost feel uh, bad. Now. I think it's just a... No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. No? Well, that's All it. right. I think that'll wrap it <laughs> we'll up. Do, we'll do plugs, I guess. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up for this week's show. This is the part of the show where if anyone's got things to plug, uh, they can do it. Matt. I guess I'm... S- I'm still supposed to tell people to buy the book according to my bosses. Uh, <laughs> buy the book. So, buy the book. Wait, wait, which one's your boss? Who's telling you? Uh, for, in, in, the, in the book advertising realm, it's Virgil, my co-host on Shampoo. <laughs> yeah. He's got us all flogging things. He's basically Alec Baldwin in Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> and we, we, if, I, if I don't get the steak knives, I'm fired. So. <laughs> What's uh, the book called? It's called Chapo Guide to Revolution and Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. Now available in stores. Cool. <laughs> All cool. right. We'll throw a link to that. Uh, and you, Gremlins 2 Institute, what have you guys got to plug other than the Gremlins 2 Institute of Studies, which I feel is inherent? 
Yeah, I'd say uh, follow follow the institute on Twitter at G two Institute. Um, I was recently uh, we had um, one of our threads published in an Argentinian journal of literary theory. Uh, <laughs> That's so awesome. It's translated into Spanish for any um, of your Spanish-speaking audience. That rules. Very cool. That's Perfect. Awesome. Well, there you go. If you want to hear yeah. more so about making, Gremlins, we're making inroads into uh, actual academia. Here we go, yeah. Gremlins <laughs> Two. That's amazing. The revival is coming. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this week's episode. That was Gremlins and Gremlins Two. Uh, what are we doing next week? We're doing a predator. No, no, oh, that's wrong. I'm wrong. That's wrong. Oh yeah, Cut we're, me we're doing. <laughs> we're gonna be back uh, for patrons next week. Oh, page, that's right. I'm yeah. thinking the next free yeah, episode. You're thinking, yeah, you're thinking wrong. We're gonna be talking about uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. That's the one. Um, the big one. Yeah. We we haven't had an excuse to do it yet, but uh, I, I we're gonna be pairing it, and this was the film that I want to talk about. We're gonna be pairing it with the remake of The Blob. Yeah. Uh, 1988. Chuck, Chuck Russell. Chuck, is it Chuck Russell? I think yeah, it's Chuck, Chuck Russell. Russell. Um, yeah. We're going to be talking about the sort of uh, body horror bonanza. Uh, the blob actually kind of resembles the first Gremlins a little bit in its sort of uh, domestic destruction. Uh, whereas uh, the thing is uh, much more apocalyptic. Yeah. But. And it even has some satirical elements that I didn't know. It had too. Oh, the blob, absolutely. I mean, yeah. yeah and, so. and the, oh, the blob rules. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's very good. Uh, I was surprised. One thing, just... uh, one thing that I think that the gremlins or gremlins two could benefit from is having a, like a song over the credits that like um, the original blob. <laughs> yeah. Like the blob. Yeah, because uh, you've never seen the original Blob, but the 50s Blob has like sort of like a Spider Baby-ish like jingle to oh, it. Oh, really? Intro? Yeah. That's awesome. Because it's like the 50s teen movie drive-in sure, kind of thing. Sure, sure. Uh, That's great. The, I'll the, have to look that up. The the remake takes the more uh, sort of body horror aspect after sort of a lot of 80s dudes like Cronenberg right. and everyone had kind of pioneered right. it. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about for, uh, patrons on next week's episode. That's again, patreon.com slash Schlezoids podcast. Yes. Uh, but for free listeners, now, two weeks, now two I'm weeks right, from now, right? now you're right. Yeah. <laughs> predator. With, uh, with the upcoming release of Shane Black's Predator, we're going to be talking about the original Predator by John McTiernan, mm-hmm. um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and we're going to be pairing it with, uh, Walter Hill's Southern Comfort. Yeah, um, we're loving Walter Hill from what we've seen. Yes, Walter Hill is excellent. Covered a couple of his and now. Southern Comfort in particular is a uh, pretty brutal uh, nom allegory uh, that takes place. It's sort of like Apocalypse Now meets like uh, <laughs> Deliverance. Because oh, okay. it takes place in like a Louisiana swamp where all these National Guardsmen right. are just kind of like uh, doing their... Uh, doing their training and they find themselves uh, in a battle with a with a bunch of local Cajuns uh, and yeah it gets it gets pretty brutal I from there. Seen that one. so uh, free listeners that's what you can expect two weeks from now and I think that just about does it uh, again uh, go on iTunes and, and rate us and stuff and go on Patreon and please do, do. do those things uh, but I think that'll wrap it up uh, for now thanks so much for listening everyone uh, keep us sleazy Keep it sleazy, guys.